You are listening to the Aesthetics and Arts Podcast, a series of interviews, conversations, philosophical explorations on beauty, art, and life. We are here with Professor Nick Zango, uh, who's been touring Portugal for the past week. You were in Lisbon uh, delivering a lecture, the first of three lectures, one on uh, the ethics of meat eating, and the second one in Guimarães on the aesthetics of architecture, formalism and politics, and finally in Porto, the evolution of miscommunication uh, gain theoretical approaches to language. Uh, this interview will focus on uh, your work on music, the aesthetics of music. Uh, I would uh, start by asking you, what was your personal path to music mm. and music together with philosophy? How did it, how did it all, all come about? Yeah, uh, not quite in that way. Uh, I, uh, my, my doctorate had nothing to do with, very little to do with aesthetics and almost nothing to do with music. So I came to it quite after you know, my, my career was up and going in other directions and I sort of went sideways. I did a segue uh, and started doing more aesthetics. I did very little aesthetics. My doctorate had, I think, half a chapter or one chapter out of 12 on aesthetics. And I came to it later uh, when I started teaching. Um, my first jobs were in America. Uh, it was tough getting a job in the UK, so I got um, an interesting job doing lots of teaching in the States. In a um, first one was East Carolina, and I suppose I confronted uh, people there doing aesthetics in a way that seemed um, odd or aliens in some ways, and I found I suppose I found something to kick against. Uh, so I started doing that as well as everything else I was doing and I still kept on with everything else It's just that the books tended to be an aesthetic. So and I, attended, I wrote a series. I wrote series of papers uh, Intending them to be part of a book um, So they weren't just it wasn't random how they came about so I would try out some ideas in papers and then put them together um, actually the first the book the first two books were originally conceived of as one with the first part on beauty and the second part on art, but then it seemed um, sensible to separate them. Um, but uh, really, you know, my, my doctorate was on metaethics, um, and really, I would say that's sort of uh, my main centre, or love in a way—not main, but love. It's the sort of main centre, central thing I do, which is really about value. Um, so I suppose there's value, and then there's um, how it, what to say about it in ethics. And then there's, uh, when, it, when you come to um, aesthetics, I also think it's very important to talk about value. And that's when I talk about, I mentioned something to kick against, because I found both 
in the US and to some extent in the UK but less so people wanted to downgrade value in thinking about aesthetics you know of all places uh, so if you remember Volheim's book Art and Its Object it, the very last sentence is I've said nothing in this book about value and that's deliberate and it is like he was proud of it and I, I said to him I, I said I found this old I met him once I was in Berkeley and I said you know that book he wrote on it's, it's got a very odd last sentence I just I mean how can you even if you think it's a separate topic so he then had a separate essay on it on value in an, in the second edition mm -hmm. but no I mean that's that I think that was misguided because you can't cannot separate value in thinking about all the other issues uh, in art that in the way he wanted to in that book and the Americans are even worse the United States I should say uh, people are even worse that they, the way they take value out Dickie did it in a fundamental way in his theory of art uh, we're not talking about the valuative notion he said um, so you know that seemed to me a mistake and so that the people I like uh, the people I, uh, I'm, I'm very old school uh, and I'm proud to be old school in some ways uh, um, so in British terms I always like Sibley who I, did I even meet him but anyway, but he was a great figure for me uh, especially the second paper uh, Aesthetic Non-Aesthetic um, um, but there's also the, of course aesthetic concepts is important but the, also the second one is very important and I think I think he told me by letter that that was originally conceived of, as part of the first article, so that was ready much earlier. It's a beautiful piece, actually, um, aesthetic, non-aesthetic. Um, I recently wrote a paper uh, in 2018 called Epistemic, Non-Epistemic Dependence, which was um, a nod to Sibley. Um, so Sibley, you know, I mean, he talks about aesthetic concepts and aesthetic features generally but there's a place for value there and over in the United States Beardsley I, I was you know he was unashamed at, uh, to make value not just a central topic you see that's the thing it's not just a topic that we should take seriously something it's something that you should weave into uh, the way you do the rest of aesthetics and I didn't like this sort of drawing out it's like it's like sort of uh, you know, aesthetics decaphenated or uh, uh, low alcohol aesthetics, you take the value out of it and I just don't think uh, what you have left is um, that worthwhile or revealing be uh, because it is the domain of value and even when you're thinking about the uh, metaphysical issues or these other issues that you come, that you get in aesthetics, uh, if you take the value out of it, you, you, you'll lose your way. And actually, I agree with Scruton makes the same point. He's sort of a bit sniffy about the ontology of art um, because it's supposed to be this neutral enterprise. Um, I mean, I love metaphysics. I'm nothing, you know, metaphysics is, is a great topic um, and we should all do as, you know, do it. And there's no not doing it. You know, it's like there's people who, you know, there's a, a kind of Wittgensteinian who pretends that they're not doing it, uh, metaphysics, but that's... Uh, What's the technical term? Bullshit, if I may say. <laughs> if I say. Uh, uh, and you can find them. It's like it's like sort of Puritans who say, "Oh, I'm not interested in affairs of the flesh." And then you find them d 
doing something weird and perverted. Yeah, and similarly yeah. with metaphysics, you know, you pretend that you're not doing it. So um, we should do it. Um, but when you do the metaphysics of it in aesthetic areas, it's got to take a specific form. Uh, one in which value is central. God, I've talked a lot there. Yeah. Yes, uh, you like to describe yourself as carrying the banner for Beardsley. Uh, in some ways. Uh, and you regret not having met him. Yeah, I told Jerry Levinson that I said, you know, I think I say in my book, you know, the greatest book, book, because Sibley never really wrote a book in aesthetics in the sort of after the war time, is Beardsley's, uh, um, Beardsley's book, Aesthetics, Problems and Criticism, I think it's called. And he said, I was being provocatively retrograde. <laughs> which um, is fine. Yeah. So, yeah, Beardsley, um, uh, and and the book is a, a wealth of good stuff. I mean, if you there's some topic you're interested in, and you just look up what Beardsley has to say about it, way back in '58, it's it's great. It's it's very rich and very insightful. So, it's a bit like uh, having a punk approach. Uh, this conservative approach, because see, like, but the way punk reacted to all that progressive, uh, sort of, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, you think I, it's a good analogy? You got me that. I mean, I was of that era, so I, you know, I, yeah. I mean, like, I was also listening to all kinds of music, but really, I had my friends. They were listening to progressive rock, <laughs> Genesis, Yes, uh, the later Pink Floyd. You know, all this sort of slightly intellectual stuff and, mm -hmm. and punk came along and it was just yeah. it was very refreshing and I was pogoing along <laughs> along with the others so in some sense yeah it's uh, trashing stuff that needed to be trashed in some ways um, I don't know that's you're not supposed to put things in the way you're supposed to be more gentle in how you put things that so they were missing out on things but I think in the way people approach things uh, um, they had to get something wrong, so I tried to, to um, yeah. Uh, I know your musical preferences extend far beyond uh, the so-called Western classical music, in, including punk, which just mentioned, Greek rebetica. Yeah, I love rebetica. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about your uh, relationship with different musical genres? Uh, what yeah. what uh, ticks your... Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's difficult to... to I think that... I, yeah, now you slightly got me that I, it, it could be that um, if I start talking about why uh, I like certain things, I might say some things inconsistent with, with some, of, some of the the views I've defended. I mean, I, I saw a concert the other night here, was that two nights ago? Two nights ago. Um, the Overture to Tristan, uh, Strauss, um, a Strauss and Mahler poem, and some Mahler. And, um, I'm, there's something, I'm, my tastes are more classical uh, in some ways, so, um, you know, I like a lot of 20th century music, uh, Schoenberg, Stravinsky, Shostakovich, um, but some of that late romantic stuff, is, maybe it goes along with neo-Kantianism, which I don't really do either, the same sort of era, uh, um, of sort of high German pretentiousness or, you know, taking itself, taking too seriously, and of course, and of course I love Bach to death, uh, and, and this, you know, and some of the other classical, you know, well-known um, composers, 
Um, I'm writing a paper on Bach at the moment, which I have been for a time, which is very long. It's got too long. Um, but I suppose a lot of the music I've always liked has been quite intense uh, and rather very sort of serious music. So, um, you know, if I want a cantata, I don't want a sort of peasant's cantata or coffee cantata. I want a real sort of blood and guts, crucifixion, death, and, you know, yeah, full of gore uh, type cantata. I see. And, uh, and of course, um, I remember I remember when I was 20, I think, when I first heard the Bach solo sonatas for violin and partitas for violin. I mean, that was a, a major moment in my uh, uh, musical evolution. Um, so I listened to those almost every day for years. Uh, uh, and I've always been in search of the perfect violinist, actually. Because, uh, yeah, which I've... Um, my parents went... They meant well, but they... You know, but they gave me uh, the huge. I said I wanted this for my twenty-first birthday, and they gave me the hoodie menu inversion, which is, uh, you know, mm -hmm. there are better ones. Uh, so, but there's a kind of I don't know what unites this, but the intensity of Rebetica, um, uh, and of course I like the the sort of mixture of order and chaos in Rebetica, where you have, you know, these uh, you have the kind of sort of what looks like European order, and then you have this nine-eight or strange uh, time signatures. Um, uh, but um, I think with Turkish and Iranian music, you don't have the kind of the framework of the of the bazooki. Yeah. Um, um, so I like that sort of combination of where Europe sort of hits the, the Middle East and the combination of the two I think is, is also flamenco of course is the same thing the same phenomena which I very much like uh, flamenco as well um, so I don't like I don't really like happy music and uh, yeah who wants to be happy music and, and then this and then this sort of this sort of painful romantic emotions that you're supposed to have in the late 19th century Give me a break, you know. Oh, so. You must like Beethoven, because of course, you, a lot you of Beethoven. grumpiness into music. Yeah, no, grumpiness <laughs> is good. I mean, uh, there's, then there's these, uh, of course, there's Beethoven. Uh, yeah, then there's the sort of happy little sheep flitting in the fields, like gambling away uh, between the sort of intense bits. Um, so, yeah, I think like, like Taruskin, I don't, I mean, I love the ninth, of course, but... Mm. You know, I'm not sure about that. The last movement, I mean, it was formally uh, a stroke of genius. I mean, because you can't have four movements of, of pure Beethoven tearing his hair out. And, um, you know, three was enough. Um, and of course, it works in some sense musically, but I, you know, the. the what it's asking me to feel. It's like at the concert the other night of the, the Mahler, the Strauss and the, the Wagner. He's, no, no, I don't want, you don't tell me to feel that. I don't want to, yeah. <laughs> so this has come back to Hanslick, if I can probably, I'm probably cutting in something, which oh, yeah. is, uh, um, you're probably going to ask later, but, you know, I mean, one of the points about Hanslick, which I've realized since I wrote that piece, which you translated, um, is that it's, it, uh, he's not really making this pure philosophical claim that music 
cannot, you know, arouse or express emotion. Cannot, so that's kind of claim from metaphysics. He, and this is stuff I'm working on now, um, things I'm writing now, but he thinks it can. He thinks it can, but it shouldn't. It's a bad thing. So he thinks that, I mean, it's sort of you're reacting to the wrong sort of component of the music. You're just reacting to its material constitution and not what's probably properly musical in it as an art, which mm. is its musical beauty constructed by relations between tones. So, so that the kind of emotions, so I'm, so when I'm there at the concert hall a couple of nights ago, you know, I, you know they're dragging me to, to feel something and I'm like, yeah, I know you want me to feel something. I know the music's maybe designed to produce this feeling, but no, thank you. Just say no to that. <laughs> kind of dovetails with the idea of musical works as artifacts, and artifacts can have proper functions yeah. and imposed uh, functions. So um, the essential function of music, uh, you could describe it that way. It's not to, it can express, represent, etc., but it's yeah. not uh, what makes it music. Yeah. yeah, I think I once would have put it that way. Uh, but I've been talking to too many musicologists uh, from whom I've learned something, um, more than something, but they, you know, they, the essential function of music. So if you say that to a musicologist, they'll say, well, which music, when? Um, they have a suspicion of those kind of very general claims that philosophers like. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, no, not embarrassed to make general claims. Obviously, uh, you know, a lot of philosophy is about, you know, highly general claims. Uh, when it comes to the essential function of, a you know, the essential function of one of those pieces the other night, if you, look, if you talk about the essential fun function of a particular piece of music rather than music abstractly, was to get me to feel certain things. So I'm sorry, no, I'm not gonna, you know, this is a hammer, but I, I, that's what it is. I'm not gonna use it to bang in a nail. I know you're trying to get me to feel this kind of late 19th century yeah. nonsense, but I'm just not gonna feel that. Uh, I don't wanna feel that, and I don't think I should feel that. Give me something, my music, I want, I want something a bit more intellectual or, or abstract. So, um, a general claim about the, I think you see, this is back to Hanslick. I think he, yeah, I mean, to some extent, it's a normative claim. It's really what it should be, not what it maybe is, uh, because, you know, he was, as people point out, I mean, he was sort of both philosophical and engaged as a critic. He was doing both. And I think, you have to do both in a way. This is the sort of truth, strangely, in Quineanism, Quine's approach to philosophy, that there's the abstract, very abstract sort of metaphysical, ontological claims you make, but they're not separate from um, uh, inquiry in an area more generally and your substantive commitments in thinking in, different, in the area in question. So I think, um, you know, there's something right about that Quinean uh, denial that you can just have a quite abstract sort of discourse in philosophy, conceptual analysis or whatever it's supposed to be. And then this completely different issue, then there's your views and how you engage 
uh, in thinking in that area. You can't, I think he's right that you can't make that separation. And in the philosophy of music, there's, um, and I don't know if I was maybe right about this in the early paper, I'd write it differently now, but you know, you can't separate views of what it is from views of how it should be from views your actual taste in the concert hall. I mean, you're also, one, one is a philosopher, but one's also uh, enjoys making and experiencing music. I don't think you can pull those apart. So, going back to the Beethoven, um, actually my favorite symphony is the fifth. The fifth and yeah. There is that moment. It's got some moments. That moment just before, when you're coming to the fourth movement, yeah. and you're finally getting to it, and I yeah. feel this, I want, I want to kick the furniture, but yeah. out of joy. <laughs> some, you know, a ferment pure. Uh, and you say uh, in your uh, latest book um, that there's something uh, somewhat heavy metalish about the allegedly sublime passages yeah. of Beethoven's symphonies. Yeah. But I, I was curious about this contrast between the allegedly sublime and the heavy metalish. Yeah. This, uh, I don't know what the sublime worries me. Um, and it's worried me, uh, especially in the case of music. The sublime in the case of art, especially John Martin, which I'd recommend to anyone in the Tate Britain with his Last Judgment and other, other works. But uh, that, that sort of makes some sense to me, where you've got sort of rocks crashing down on people who are being crushed in huge numbers. And the, um, um, but the sublime in music is talked about, but I'm not quite sure mm. what to make of it. Um, so that's why I'm slightly skeptical about um, about it. Um, yeah, I mean, there's something, um, yeah, there's something, I draw a comparison there between some, there's a sort of head banging. There's, I mean, I think Taruskin goes on about this as well. I mean, I'm a huge Taruskin fan. It's very sad he died recently, mm. but, he says it's really a, it's a, a percussion symphony at certain points. It's just it's all sort of drumming and this is and banging. You know, it's there's something raw and yeah, yeah, heavy metal about it <laughs> in a great way. Um, uh, and there's 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 sort of an anger in it. So the music and emotional description mm -hmm. there, and. Um, and a, there is this bit where you seem to have this kind of frustration and then um, sort of bursting out, uh, which Susan McClary talks about. But she's, she's sort of onto something about it. You don't have to describe it in her way, though. Um, yeah, all that's rather wonderful. Um, and that's the paradox in a way. Mm. It's sort of anguished. And if you're going to describe it in emotional terms, you'll use these, you know, terms like that. But it, what I couldn't make you feel happier to listen to it. So yeah, we, we can um, take them as metaphors. That um, would be a way to go. But uh, <clears throat> and for sure, a lot of music you, you can make up all sorts of stories that yeah. go along with it. Yeah. But uh, in this cases like these, it seems that it, it's somehow. Uh, welded to your enjoyment in a way yeah. that is it I'm, I wonder it makes me wonder is it consistent to maintain the formalist attitude uh, what, 
Is it enough to say, it's just a metaphorical description that I could exchange for some other equally appropriate metaphorical description, or is there something especially appropriate with that? Especially appropriate. I don't, I suppose, I, don't, I mean, it, I think different people, I mean, Haslick makes this point that people um, use, have quite different descriptions of the same pieces over time, and to some extent when you describe something, uh, you go to describe something difficult to describe, and you're drawing on metaphors and other um, non-standard uses of language to try and get at it. For example, if you're describing how you're feeling, um, uh, that's also difficult to get at. And I think you'll draw on a lot of things which are quite personal to you or your culture, which might not mean very much to someone else or from someone in a different culture because it's kind of local, the way of describing it. Um, so uh, I suppose I don't. I suppose we might find. I suppose it might be the case that we can't think of any better terms than those emotional descriptions to fix on what we like so much about it or what's so valuable to us. Uh, I think we can also, if you, you know, you struggle, you think, well, okay, describe that piece of music, right, but you're not allowed to use metaphor, uh, those metaphors, you've got to use these metaphors, you can do it, you know, you can describe it in terms of, you know, you describe, um, okay, we were at the beach yesterday, um, look, and the, the, the surf was coming in, and there were these wonderful rocks right there, poof! You know, it hits, and the the the, 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 um, the waves were just going everywhere, and and uh, enormous power the way they hit the rocks, like shards of glass everywhere. Yeah, uh, you, there's all sorts of ways you could describe it, but you could also use that as a way to describe some of some of what Beethoven is doing in some of those passages, the sort of heavy metal passages. I think it, you could also, um, you know, you just have to get a bit creative. Uh, and the metaphors we use are, to some extent, they're, as feminists have rightly pointed out, they're ideological to some extent, they use certain metaphors, not others. Um, um, and you can be creative and think of alternative metaphors to describe uh, things which can work equally well or better. Um, but if you come from a certain <coughs> sort of experience or cultural background, it could be that certain metaphors will work for you. <clears throat> so you might, you might, if you're speaking somewhat to someone who's got a different experience from you, but you know something about their background experience, you might use metaphors that would, particularly, they would get. Um, um, but, so I think there's something pragmatic about the choices of ways of describing what we think is um, interesting or great about some music. Uh, one of my favorite quotations <coughs> from you is a sort of description of formalism, uh, which is the following. Listening to music is an isolated and lonely oh, encounter yeah. with another world, <laughs> yeah. a disembodied world of beautiful yeah. sound, yeah. far from the world of human life. Yeah. To humanize music is to desecrate it. Yeah. it um, music is inhuman and awesome because of it, like stars in the night sky. Yeah, that was naughty. <laughs> Almost like... I mean, I was writing it to... 
I mean, okay, I was writing it. Um, I, you know, I, I sort of, you see, this goes back to punk rock, you know, <laughs> punk, punk rock, you know, I mean, one of the great things <clears throat> we all know is that the Sex Pistols were on TV and famously all these people were watching TV and they were so angry that they broke, that the, they threw things at the TV and smashed, <laughs> smashed their own TVs. So I suppose I imagine musicologists doing that when they read that. When they read it. <laughs> I think, personally, I remember that uh, you know, only a rational animal can be irrational. Mm. So I was, you need human to be, this inhuman yeah. needs human, because you see, the stars in the night sky, the awesome, this is, yeah. speaks of us. Uh, yeah, this, I mean, of course, I'm <coughs> what I'm getting at is the kind of abstractness of what we're appreciating uh, in music, in a way that um, uh, Scruton also talks about, and he gets it um, to some extent from Zucker Candle mm -hmm. as well, who's a, a great writer, Austrian writer, uh, Viennese, not Austrian, Viennese uh, writer, <coughs> and um, this idea that when you're you're sort of in the music, in the world of it, um, when you're listening to it, um, and you're when you follow it, you are, you know, you're moving, you're you're following that phrase, and your mind is moving um, in that sort of world the sort of apparent world of music. Scruton talks about this a lot, so there's, there's something phenomenologically right about it. Uh, and it couldn't be more opposed to a lot of the nonsense people will talk about, the, you know, the, the, no, no, in fact, this is a code for talking about this social structure and all that, which is just, like, you know, it seems to me that there are such things, you know, if you, know, you hear the Marseillaise or something, you think, oh, I know what that's signalling. That's music yeah. as sort of code, like, you know, but that's so trivial and so it's such a trivial part of, of music. And of course it is that they're called topics and it's, they exist and it's trivial and they're not part of what's interesting or valuable about hardly any music that it's a bunch of codes so that you have to read it as Susan yeah. McClary says. So, um, so partly that's what I'm kicking against there. Um, but also it, it speaks to back to my own experience of, you know, the Bach partitas and sonatas, when you've got a really good violinist and not one who's um, sloppily, romantically emotional all over the place. Um, I like someone called Reinhard Barchet, but he didn't, he didn't, rec he only recorded the ones with the, the harpsichord and violin, not, anyway. So if you get a really good one who's not sloppily romantic, uh, which then, then, um, because that sort of pulls you back to earth, if you like. But if you you can you're just sort of there, um, transfixed by this almost mathematical structure, as people have, you know, for across many different cultures have found this analogy with an analogy with mathematics. But it is something we are appreciating intellectually with what Hanslick calls Geist mm -hmm. in his special sense. Um, and not it's we're not wallowing in it, um, but we're f we're not wallowing, we're following. I mean that's the, that's the handflick thing. Music is something you follow, and you follow its structures, and that's uh, like um, and you know the complexity of Bach can be like a um, a complexity of a, um, a dome in a mosque. 
where you've got this complex structure and you're seeing how all these patterns fit together. And so you can, as I was saying in the architecture talk, then, 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 okay, and maybe I didn't say that in that piece, once that's in place, once you've got the musical beauty in place, then it can play its role. Then, then you can affix meetings to it. Then you, one can be a national anthem or have some religious mm. function or blah, blah, blah. Um, but only once the musical beauty is in place, which is something abstract, not denying that you can then uh, humanize it and then it can have these meanings in a sense. Then you can you know, use it as a code but only because it's something else first. Oh. So maybe, I, I don't know if I'd have to look at that sentence again, um, uh, but you know, there's, there's what, as, what music does essentially, if we want to yeah. talk in that way, it does in a way which is pretty abstract. And then any other role it has, it can only have because it does that more pure thing. Free musical beauty must come before the dependent exactly. musical beauty. Stimmt, genau. But I'm going to, I'm going to take... Uh, you want to say something about that? No, no. I wanted to take the, uh, the, mathematic, the reference to mathematics and be a little naughty. Okay. Because I'm rem ah, yes. It reminds me of your debate with John Barker. No, I'm in like, trouble. Uh, <laughs> what you just said, uh, yeah. is there something inconsistent there with what you defended against John Barker about mathematical beauty or...? or uh, well, he wrote a very good critique of me. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but I remember I, at the time I went... Almost, you almost... I mean, I was, <laughs> I was on the back foot um, because um, this is the context of this is the question of the kinds of things that can have beauty. And I was being uh, restricted about that and claiming that in order to be a sort of candidate for beauty you have to have a kind of uh, sensuous nature of some kind um, so um, uh, so there's something in music that we listen to in some, and there are tones but there are also sounds uh, and in the visual arts you've got um, you've got design but you've also got colours and shapes and then you've got design, something Cam talks about as qualities of design are what we're responding to, uh, not the pure colours. Um, uh, so the context of that is then I wanted to say um, uh, where there's no sensuous nature at all then beauty has no place. So, for example, with conceptual art uh, and with mathematics, I wanted to say that if they're purely to be conceived but not perceived, uh, then it's doing something else, and it may be great what it's doing and good in its own way, but it's not a matter of beauty. Uh, and so mathematics, uh, conceptual art, is, it's an art in a broad sense, but it's, it's, not, it's doing something very different from... Uh, the art of um, the, the beauty that you find uh, in a lot of other visual arts. So I wanted to step and, and I tried to argue um, against a sort of abstract beauty, against, basically against Plato, um, that um, and and who was corrupted by the goddess uh, Diatoma mm -hmm. um, to believe 
that um, the there's a kind of lower beauty of sights and sounds mm -hmm. in the Republic and, and in the Symposium, but then there's some kind of uh, higher beauty that attracts, at, attaches to abstract objects like mathematical objects and of course above all the forms themselves. So the ultimate beautiful thing is, is the beautiful. Um, whereas, uh, yeah, this is obviously in Plato studies immensely controversial, this idea of self-predication. But I wanted to say that actually that's a too radical extension of our normal notion of beauty which depends on a perceivable, something perceivable at root. Mm -hmm. So, so you're, but you're right to pressure there in a way because we follow the music. So if you think about Hanslick's view, and I'd, when we're talking about Hanslick, can I recommend to everyone that chapter four and five, uh, which is the first part that was written um, of the book. And so you, you, you have the relations between tones. You've got a threefold structure. You've got the musical beauty, which is held up or dependent on relations between tones, but they also have to have a material substrate, which is sound. So you've got a distinction of sound and tone, which Scruton also makes and doesn't, in his book, and doesn't cite Hanslick, which is a crime. He should have done it, because it's straight out, it's textbook Hanslick. Um, so that the, but the, there has to be something sensuous to be perceived. Um, um, there has to be that the perceivable material substrate, both in the visual arts and in uh, the case of beauty, but the appreciation, um, uh, t tones are not, were, were, there no, were there no sounds, there would be no tones. So there have to be, has to be sound to be, for there to be the musical, musical, mu musically beautiful. Um, but um, what we're, our attention, when we're attending to music, and it's all about attention, that's the crucial thing um, in Hanslick, it's this, which is something he gets from Brentano, who he gets from uh, Herbart, ultimately the idea of intentionality, which uh, is very fundamental for Hanslick's way of thinking about things. You're at, what are you attending to? The way beauty arises from structures of tones. Uh, and of course you're aware of the material substrate, but that's not what you're, um, so you need your body. It's a bit like a Cartesian picture in a way. You need your body to be doing the perceiving, that no, no body, no perception. Uh, Descartes can agree with that. But then the mind, the intellectual aspect of the mind is attending to the tones supported by the material substrate and the way the tones generate musical beauty. That's what you're following and attending to. So in that sense, it's abstract, but in other ways, uh, uh, and then the, sorry, and then there are these relations between the tones that looks kind of mathematical and that there's a bunch of relations between items. Um, um, some people see mathematics in terms of items with structural relations between them. Um, but all that is all that is supported by something we perceive, and that's unlike mathematics. Uh, I don't resist this <laughs> quote. Uh, we've talked about it, but uh, I, 
can't resist mentioning it here. Perhaps the worst music I've heard is that of the Canadian pop rock yes. singer Brian Adams. Yes. What is interesting is that one would not want to say that his music is ugly in the sense of being jarring and unpleasantly discordant. Instead, it is all too sickly smooth and bland, rather like very sweet, artificial tasting, fizzy drinks. Ah, yes. I love the metaphor. <laughs> Perhaps there is even something superficially agreeable about it, of the kind that might generate the catchy addictiveness of tunes that get stuck in one's head against his will. However, Brian Adams clearly intends his music to have aesthetic value, which is part of what is so cringe-making about it. And mm. I always thought, ever since I read this, that <laughs> this is your least formalist statement in the yeah. whole book. Cringe-making, yeah. Because this yeah. cringe-making, this is uh, aesthetic judgment. And yeah. uh, uh, somehow the fact that he clearly intends his yes. music to have aesthetic value is part of it. Yes. So. Well, I mean, I, 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 someone, I wouldn't say who it was but there's a, there's a textbook on aesthetics and they say uh, it's quite this is quite a good philosopher but there's a textbook and they get a bit on aesthetic theories of art and they say well the trouble with aesthetic theories of art is there would be no bad art <laughs> yeah uh, it's quite a well-known philosopher of music who actually wrote that and I, I complained to him I said look in a second edition please please tweak that it's it's ridiculous uh, uh, Christy Maguire is extremely good on this in his uh, book. Art and Art Attempts. Yeah. Um, so, you know, things can go wrong, but there's an asp I suppose I was wanting to say, in as far as this is, it's aspiring to be music, and it is. I mean, something, uh, this is just a, an old point about functions that Ruth Millikan emphasizes that something can have a function even though they don't discharge it. So, Brian Adams, you know, some music has, like that has been created with a certain intent um, to create certain kinds of musical value in virtue of certain tones artistically combined in Hanslick's terms, but it, it doesn't. So, you know, they've attempted to do something um, like if I attempted to, you know, I could attempt to build something that fell down. So, um, I suppose, in that case, uh, what is cr the idea of being cringe-making about it? They've you know, it is, there's an aspiration to make something... Um, um, I mean, in a sense, he has achieved a certain... successfully achieved a certain aesthetic effect, right? So, you can't deny... Um, for music that you dislike in that way. It's not that they've failed to achieve these mid-level aesthetic notions. So this mm -hmm. is something we haven't talked about. Back to Sibley, there's the evaluative aesthetic notions, beauty and the like, uh, and then there's these mid-level descriptions, um, um, which I might use, sickly sweet, I might use, but then there is certainly um, an effect that that um, they that that musician has brought off um, an aesthetic effect they've successfully brought off, but then then the question is what kind of value does that realize? And I suppose that I was just there was a gap between the aspiration and the fulfilment. I don't know if that's uh, 
speaks to the cringe. But there's a, I was trying, that leads to ways of explaining what looks like a kind of uh, failure in, in a sense. Um, but obviously lots of people like that kind of stuff. Uh, and then the question is, would be what kind of critique is it? Um, uh, what kind of discussion are you going to have when you uh, meet people who like that kind of stuff rather than the kind of more intense music that I tend to prefer? Um, and it might be quite interesting, I think, to see how the conversation developed. Um, and this is when you get to some really difficult points in aesthetics, which I think only really Scruton has a go at recently, but maybe some of the Continentals do in their own way. Um, but when you go, so with someone who's really into Brian Amit, Brian Adams, for example, suppose I, we, have, we get into debate and discussion. The debate is unlikely to remain Focus just on music. It's mm. going to be there are going to be broader values mm. at stake, um, and that is significant. And that, if you wanted to put pressure on me, I reckon that's a good place. So you sort of found a good place. It's the kind of thing that um, the sentimentalists would do well at because for them there's no radical separation between our aesthetic and the moral sensibilities. Um, so, yeah, there's a question about how that discussion would go, uh, and I accept um, that I might have to struggle a bit to uh, retain my purity, <laughs> have to retain my purity, um, as that discussion went along. I, I agree with that. I'm sort of accepting your. There's a problem there. Okay, another question I don't resist asking. Um, in your discussion of the role of metaphor in, in the description of music, you say, at some point, you say something that's really provocative to Wittgensteinians. I love to be uh, provocative to Wittgensteinians. They 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 have got it coming. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. this particular. The bit I'm thinking about is there is no such thing as a private language argument. Oh yes, in Wittgenstein. Well, yeah. Um, when I wrote that, I'd read an awful lot of Wittgenstein, uh, and I was convinced, especially that the investigations, it it, it wasn't clearly there. Man muchte sagen. The whole private language argument is prefaced by this word, one wants to say, one wants to say. I mean, that's not an assertion. He's not saying this is true. He says, there's some inclination to say. And at other points in the investigation, he says, there's an inclination to say this thing, but yet it's wrong. There's another point in the investigation, he says exactly that. So why in 258? The whole private language argument is hinges on this is this sentence which has that in front of it. So I think there's, you know, there's a sort of close reading that Wittgensteinians almost never do um, of the text. Um, but um, I was in touch with David Stern, who's a proper, proper scholar, uh, unlike a, most Wittgensteinians who are pretty lazy at reading Wittgenstein, I think. 
um, they sort of read what they want to read. Um, um, there, in the Philosophical Occasions book, there's a couple of uh, what were unpublished lectures on sense data, and um, at the moment, those particular texts, there's lectures on privacy and on sense data. There, there's a couple of where that's the only thing, only things I've found so far which look like he might be committed to. Um, denying the possibility, the possibility and actuality of private languages. So since I wrote that, um, I've seen these other two texts, but I still think the investigations there is there's not clearly one there. Um, but the trouble is, the trouble with is, um, I was talking to Hanoch Benyami about this the other day. You know, the investigations. He he's trouble with Saint Ludwig. Is this Karl Kraus? In the background, this kind of Austrian um, theorist of writing, who's got a certain insistence on integrity and style, and he's very stylistically committed. And style is incredibly important to him. Style, style is the man, and that sort of integrity in writing uh, and in presenting his his uh, what he says is is very important. So he's not primarily concerned with communication, funnily enough. Uh, but in some of the, especially the stuff in English, it's where he's, there's, there's a lecture which is actually written for, to, for a public audience, and it's much easier to follow his, his train of argument and how he's actually reasoning um, about these things. And so some of those texts need a lot more uh, uh, reading. So at the moment I'm a bit uh, agnostic about it, I'm not sure I might want to backtrack on that claim. Mm -hmm. um, certainly what most of Wittgenstein but Wittgensteinians say about Wittgenstein sounds to, it's just incredible to me. You can read the text, which is just plainly saying, um, he says like the essential thing about private sensations is blah, blah, blah. That's in the investigations. And they'll say, oh, here he's denying the existence of privacy. Of private sensation. You think, no, actually the text says the opposite of that. But it's like, I suppose, it's like a sort of, um, uh, people are just projecting onto it what they want to read. And usually it's some kind of, you know, Oxford mid-century, you know, conceptual analysis philosophy that gets projected onto the text. You know, it's a bit random. Um, there are there are people writing um, in a, um, on Wittgenstein, but they tend not to be Wittgensteinians, but you know, but there's, there's, there is the text deserves more in depth, sort of nitty bitty, picky uh, scholarship than it's received. Um, it tends to be very impressionistic, you know. But basically, any book uh, on Wittgenstein, if you open it and it begins with the idea, it begins with a sentence like, "You've got to understand that Wittgenstein is aiming to." dethrone the whole of philosophy and show it's how it's all nonsense and then you no let's what, see what he says about it, particular movements particular passages and um, you know that sort of global way uh, that Wittgensteinian approach to Wittgenstein is it's just hopeless and a waste of time and is, is makes people feel good when they read it but it's, it's no it, he, he becomes so much less interesting because he becomes a negative philosopher and very little of Wittgenstein has that kind of 
negativity. Look, suppose you're a great philosopher. Suppose you, you're a great philosopher. What are you going to spend your whole time doing? Showing how, you know, how... This is such a waste of time. The rest of philosophy <laughs> is not worthwhile. Is that, is that really, you know, a great enterprise? Uh, no, you're, I mean, he has lots of positive things. He has, makes many positive claims. Um, that Colin McGinn book, I think is quite good, from 1984, he says, look, here are the negative claims, here's the positive claims. And he makes lots of positive claims. Um, and the idea that he's a negative philosopher, I think, is disastrous. Okay, moving to another point. Uh, another quotation from the book. Um, if you do not like smoked salmon, uh. you are not lacking in judgment in the way that you are if you do not appreciate the beauty of the Alhambra. So, okay, yeah. what if I say that I prepare gin with Schweppes instead of um, fever tree tonic and what you call it? bitters. Yeah. <laughs> Am I lacking in judgment if I say that? Yeah. I mean, I really, I mean, as Hume points out, there are some points where there's kind of, uh, there are variations, you know, with Ovid and Tacitus and the younger man and the older man. Mm -hmm. um, and Angostura bitters really falls into that. You know, some people just don't like Angostura bitters. Uh, and uh, I, I rather like just a little. You can overdo it. Uh, it's like soy sauce. You don't want too much on your sushi. You've got to have the right amount, otherwise it's not icky. <laughs> anyway, that's a Japanese aesthetic concept, iki, which is quite hard to, to grasp. But the idea is, I'm just vindicating, it's just going along with Kant there, that there's a difference between um, um, pleasures of aesthetic taste and uh, pleasures in uh, culinary matters, which are, they can be important in their own way. And they even have, Scruton's also good on this, they even have their own of quasi-objectivity in their expression. Uh, one of his examples I remember is lamb tastes better with garlic. You know, mm -hmm. so, well, well, it does, you know. Uh, um, but um, Kant will see this as having uh, something like a, a general but not a universal claim, if I remember my third critique right, um, in section Six, seven, I think it is. Um, so that you know, we may we you you wouldn't find it in the syntax, um, but you're supposed to find it in the semantics of claims about mm. uh, taste. Um, that uh, the there's a kind of <coughs> claim to the kind of claim to correctness we make in one area, but not the other. And Kant theorizes that in in a way where they have a different. Um, claim because one in, in Kant, well I'm sure you know, uh, his claim is, is an appeal to those who share our rational faculties. Mm -hmm. uh, the other, um, you cannot make a claim um, to those who don't share your sensory faculties, so people who taste things in a very different way. Uh, it's not unlike Hanslick's um, um, distinction between the sort of the, the material mode and the, the, the tones. Um, but um, I'm persuaded by Alex Wilfing um, uh, from Vienna that um, this, it would be a mistake to see a direct influence of Kant on Hanslick. There could be 
you know, it was a, a common distinction. There are enough other differences between Kant and Hanslick anyway, and um, there's all sorts of other intellectual sources for those kind of distinctions. So, I mean, I've had kickback on that, and a lot of people want to say, well, there is a kind of similarity. There isn't the kind of dissimilarity in the kind of correctness claimed. But, um, yeah, so I, I tend to hold that, which means that I kind of, it's a kind of discrimination against the lower, the lower senses of, mm. of taste and smell. However much we, we relish them and enjoy food and mm. drink, it doesn't engage Geist mm. <laughs> in Hanslick's sense, our intellectual um, selves in the same way. So I, I'd want to insist on that distinction, kind of unfashionable now, um, where everyone's into kind of multi-sensuous and all the senses are flowing together and we, in architecture we have to yep. lick buildings and you know, <laughs> taste them and whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, um, but yeah I, I, yeah, I think there's uh, something in that kind of hierarchy um, and in the kind of, I suppose it goes back to this earlier question about possibly this connection with mathematics. There's a kind of abstraction we can attain in our visual and oral uh, perceptual experiences, which is, which is uh, um, uh, it's an abstraction sort of from the matter. Um, it's difficult to defend that because uh, it turns out that in the, you know, you don't want colour to be irrelevant in, in painting. Um, it was for people like, you know, for some of the early British formalists, um, where you have Fry and Bell, you have a, a sort of sculptural representation of this sculptural mass, and the question is, uh, you you can actually decolor a Cezanne by squinting at it, and then you know the question is, what's lost? And of course, you've got the sort of the joy of the French countryside and the lovely summer, and that all goes. You've got something. Uh, the question is, you know. I mean, it is a shame to lose that. So maybe you've got a bit of work to do to explain, the formalist has work to do, um, both in the visual arts and in music, uh, to explain why um, color matters and combinations of colors. Uh, you see, that's maybe with the way back, see there. Um, uh, and similarly, of course, timbre matters. The, the tone quality of an instrument, of course, matters. Um, um, and the, the specific, but the, is it? It's but then I suppose maybe Hanslick can come back, or a form a visual formalist could come back and say, look, hang on, no, I didn't say all the colours are irrelevant, uh, because you've still got the relations between the colours. There's still a sort of formal connection between those colour elements. If it's a pure, you see, Kant in the third critique, a pure enjoyment of the colour yellow. You know, you can do that. So suppose I just sort of I stare at a yellow wall, and it's just a. I mean, I suppose you know, it's a special blues. People make paintings of special blues. Um, how is that engaging our aesthetic faculties, um, or the pure? You know, there are some sounds which are you know uh, unpleasant or pleasant. Um, of course, that's. I was going to say part of music, but I shouldn't say that. I was going to say that's part of music. It's sort of, of course, it's part of what a composer works with. Um, 
um, but uh, its music is a whole lot more uh, than um, those qualities of sound which are pleasant and unpleasant in their own way. So, so maybe the thing to say is, you know, our pleasures in, uh, this is a kind of musicological thing to say, you know, you know, there's a variety of things that we're enjoying uh, or can be enjoying in, in different cases of different kinds of music, but in, suppose you've got a beautiful soprano, you know, a soprano with, you know, you're, it's callous or something, you know, you've just got a wonderful tone, you know, and you're enjoying other things that can be you can be enjoying you can be having many kinds of pleasure at one time um, and if Taruskin's right about Bach it's the sort of opposite case of, of Callas because you're actually it's you know it's better if it sounds rather bad and for Taruskin, Taruskin claims that Bach is trying to actually break break the not quite break the instrument but let you you know composing things where the, 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 the instrument's not going to work and it's going to, going to make a horrible noise. Uh, and that's supposed to be what he's aiming at, as a kind of ugliness, he claims. But then the thought is that the... Um, contrary to Taruskin, I would say that the pleasure, the, more, the, the, the pleasure in the way that all fits together, um, those kind of ugly tones can fit together to make um, beautiful music uh, of a kind of intensity so yeah I'm struggling what I'm doing is I'm struggling I think not too unsuccessfully to engage with the sort of the material of, of visual art of the, the colors which are obviously important and the, the timbre and the sounds which is obviously important in a way which doesn't subtract the basic formalist insights put it in Kant's terms if you like there's, there's pleasure in beauty he didn't put it quite like that, but there's pleasure in beauty, and then there's pleasure in the agreeable. And there could be uh, uh, where you've got an absolutely wonderful singer, mm. um, a cast or someone, you can enjoy the tone, uh, an agreeable tone, mm. uh, an agreeable sound, I should say. Sorry, agreeable sound at the same time as appreciating the musical beauty, and you could do both at the same time. But in the Bach case, according to the Ruskin, there's the disagreeable sound, but you can also fit that together with the musical beauty. Mm -hmm. Musically beautiful, with a hyphen. Would you describe Kant as a formalist? Ah. Uh, I'm thinking of Noel Carroll and all no. those. Uh, no, I mean, no, no, I wouldn't. It's, it's commonly done. I basically yeah. no. And I'm, I, I sort of get depressed when I see him described yet again as an aesthetic formalist. Dependent beauty is right there. Okay. And he thinks, to, you know, dependent beauty thinks, can, I think poetry, I think, he, uh, is it the case of poetry? Um, it can even have a greater value. I mean, he, no, if, if a formalist is someone who says there's only formal mm. aesthetic, um, there's only formal beauty, then Kant's not a formalist because there's dependent beauty. So uh, he does, yeah, so it's, it's, it's very common to hear people say that, but... I think in this particular point you agree with Carroll and Young uh, on the... that Kant is not the formalist. Do they say that? Okay, then, then I do. You've read more than me then, yeah. so yeah. Um, <laughs> so, okay. We should conclude uh, this uh, talk on music with actual music. And I've never seen you play the piano in your yeah. house. 
uh, but I've, I have seen you play the accordion yeah. uh, and uh, yesterday, uh, harmonica. Ah, yes. uh, not beach. classical music. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, well I'm a tango fan, so I shouldn't really confess this uh, uh, because it might seem inconsistent with my uh, slightly uh, hardline puritanical views and tango is often seen as uh, uh, very emotional music. Um, guilty pleasure. So it may be a guilty pleasure, <laughs> perhaps. Uh, very much like tango, uh, I dance it as well, but obviously since COVID it's been a disaster for, for all that. Um, I first discovered tango from a philosopher of science uh, wow. colleague doing in, when I was doing my doctorate, who I met a lot later, who then became a psychologist, as David Agnado, who's a bass player, who used to play bass with Van Morrison and other people. He left philosophy and then became a, a musician and then came back to psychology. And he introduced me to Piazzolla, and then I found Gardel in, in America, um, and discovered more about tango. Piazzolla's interesting because he, uh, he gets classified as jazz, classical music and as folk. You could find him, if you try to find where he is in, the, in, a, in a music shop, he's, he's multi-classifiable. Um, and then I started uh, doing some, then I started doing some dancing and then I'd play music there and I discovered uh, uh, people like Pugliese. Pugliese is wonderful. Um, he's the kind of uh, Beethoven of tango. He's sort of, there's this intense beat um, and of course it's wonderful the way they've got the bandonian and they they break it on their legs like this and I had a bandonian and I, failed, I, I sold it because I failed to, to play it um, and then there's Diaz who plays the harmonica and I'm nothing like his but anyway let me play some uh, yeah. of everything about <laughs> music, but then consistency. And sticks the lead ending. I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm not sure there's an inconsistency there. Um, <laughs> but certainly, I mean, Pugliese is something which is unlike Piazzolla. Uh, Piazzolla is sort of intellectual in a way, and you shouldn't really dance to it. People, you can dance to Piazzolla, uh, and people do. Um, it's a bit affected, I think, whereas Pugliese is for dancing in a way. I mean, some music is for dancing, and it's not pure music in that sense. I mean, although, you know, in Bach you have these dance themes, um, I've never said that music should be pure, that there shouldn't be this impure music. I wrote a whole paper saying that Hanslick believes in impure music as well. So in the case of uh, tango, a lot of tango made sense. People danced to it and it was for dancing in a way Pugliese, he, uh, in a way, sorry, Piazzolla takes it and makes something mm. an art, 
a, a purely cerebral art form, you can sit and listen to it. And it's a different kind of thing in a way. Uh, and just as Bach uh, contains dance themes within his music, it doesn't mean, uh, and, and that's sort of part of it, and he's drawing on that tradition. Um, Piazzolo's drawing on um, the tradition where you make something for dancing, but it's, uh, uh, to some extent though, with Pugliese, you get it more uh, when you dance to it, and you get that rump, rump, and it's like, wow. Uh, which uh, sometimes that's not a matter of purely intellectual contemplation. So, but I don't think there's a fundamental inconsistency um, because it's an impure art form. It has its formal side, and this is also it has other functions as well as that, which it achieves only because it has certain formal values. So the formal is still. So I'm not a sort of absolutist formalist. It's the but there's a priority to the formal values, explanatory and a priority to the to the formal values, without which it wouldn't have the other ones. So I'm being I'm a, I'm defensive here, <laughs> so trying to defend my love of tango, uh, in spite of my uh, academic views. So. Thank you so much. You should shake hands. <laughs> High five. <laughs> That's it.